Maya Salovitz is a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist. Her books, Unbroken Brain, one of my favorites, and Undoing Drugs are considered by many to be unrivaled compositions on the interplay between neuroscience, addiction, drug policy, and harm reduction. She's written five other books as well, Help at Any Cost, Born for Love, Lost Boys. I just read that recently. It's very good. The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog and Recovery Options, The Complete Guide. She's a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times, along with uh, a bunch of different publications, including Time, Scientific American, The Washington Post, Newsweek, and Oprah Magazine, to name a few. I've studied addiction and drug policy for the last 10 years. I've read many books, heard different takes from different people on what addiction is, why addiction affects us the way it does. Nobody puts it all together like Maya Salovitz. So please welcome, for episode number 20 of Recovery Machine, it's our great honor, Maya Salovitz. Welcome to Recovery Machine, episode 20, a milestone for us. I'm your co-host, Corey, and I'm here, as always, with co-host, Nathan. Good. It's almost afternoon, Nathan. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. It's a very exciting episode. We have Maya Salovitz with us. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try not to have too much of a freak out here. She's an author who has uh, uh, written a book that I've read many, many times, which is Unbroken Brain. And uh, in my opinion, it is the pinnacle of if, if you're studying addiction and you want to know how addiction works and uh, you want an in-depth look at what the science is currently, this book is an absolute must read. It's, it's absolutely amazing and it changed my life. So thank you very much for joining us, Maya. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Um, we've got uh, a few questions here. We're going to, uh, I've got a couple that are kind of self-indulgent, but I haven't heard you, uh, I haven't heard you answer them before. So I'm just curious. I mean, you've, you were reading at age three, I believe you've, uh, you've kind of always been ahead of your peers. You've been ahead of, 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 on this, on addiction, especially, I think you're, even currently, uh, in my estimation, maybe 15 years ahead of what most medical establishments believe to be uh, the facts. And uh, for some reason that I can't figure out, this this seems to be the case. And I, I see you're on social media quite a bit, and I, I watch you, you're patiently trying to educate people, um, you know, replying to people who are asking questions. Of course, you're going to get uh, with the harm reduction stuff. You're going to get tons of negative feedback. I see that too. Somehow, you manage to keep your your cool. How do you how, how do you kind of cope with that? The fact that you're that far ahead, and and we're waiting for everybody to catch up. Thanks. Well, unfortunately, um, also um, 
I think the same thing that um, gave me those advantages in terms of like being ahead, which is probably partially because I'm on the autism spectrum, um, also gives me the mostly the patience to deal with a lot of repetition. Um, oh, okay. So, um, I mean, obviously not always, um, and it definitely can be extremely frustrating. Um, but I, you know, sometimes you just have to repeat things a lot before people get it. And I think a lot of my work has been finding ways that people can hear this stuff because it, it, it can be very difficult for people to hear new ways of thinking, especially if they don't, if they've never really questioned the stuff they've been taught previously. Yeah. And we've got a lot of ingrained stigma that is, seems very difficult to, to remove or change. Uh, although lately it does seem like uh, me and Corey have noticed, you know, in the last, what would you say, Corey, a year, maybe two or even two or three years, I guess, in our part of the world, anywhere here in Western Canada, there's a little more progression. You're starting to see a little more empathy, a little more understanding. Our government still has a long ways to go, but you know they they know what safe supply is. They you know they pretend at least to do something about it. They're not really doing anything about it, but it's much more than it was before. Do you think that uh, is that kind of are you feeling that there too? Is there a little more progression? I mean, it's such a crazy time right now. Before the pandemic, I was amazed at the progression we've been making. Now there's just so much crazy stuff going on politically um, that it can be really hard to tell. And there certainly are people trying to stir up a backlash, but it has not caught on the way it would have done in the 80s and 90s. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, you know, even beginning to mention studying decriminalization was like surrender in the drug war and you were horribly radical. Um, you know, now I literally cannot find anybody who will argue that criminalizing possession in and of itself, just locking people up for possession makes sense. Now there will be some people who say we should lock them up and put them in treatment, mm -hmm. but Nobody says that what we're actually doing, which is just locking people up, um, is effective. Right. Yeah. And that is that is a critical piece of progress right there, uh, especially in the States. Do you uh, do you pay attention to policy up here in Canada as well? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, I've been you know, it's like, as you said, if they would scale safe supply, um, you would be doing amazing things. Yeah, I guess that's the first stage. If you're um, if you're seeing politicians at least pay lip service, then yeah, I feel like that too because it's it's really you know you've won the war at this point. It's just now getting stuff implemented because if they say they think it's the right thing to do, then they have very little excuse not to actually do it. Yeah, they can say we don't have money or this kind of thing and that, but um, it is a lot easier to fight. Once the people agree that once people agree that the strategy is what we should be using. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's uh, just getting people to open their mind enough to, I know this can be very difficult for people who haven't been through the experience of uh, addiction, especially drug addiction, um, you know, going through the current processes or even, you know, the hardest, like what, uh, what you faced when you were, uh, 
in your uh, early 20s where, you know, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. You, you know, you ended up getting in a trouble that could have destroyed your entire life, really. And it, yeah. it, it, it wasn't, uh, it's, you know, there are people who are still, many people who are still in jail for, for just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I have tried to make clear is that the most commonly accepted definition of addiction is compulsive behavior, drug use, other kinds of behavior that continues in the face of negative consequences. In other words, punishment is the one thing we know will not work by definition. And that sort of people, that sort of starts to make people think. You know, because once you've got beyond defining addiction as, oh, you physically need something to function. Well, we all need water. We all need air. We all need love. You know, if we have our appropriate sources of those things, it is not a problem. What is a problem is if we're compulsively pursuing something harmful. And a lot of people get that because, you know, a lot of people are on medication for blood pressure that they have to stay on. And in fact, withdrawal from some of those medications could actually kill you. But nobody robs drugstores for them because you don't crave them or feel any um, kind of relief from them. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it actually might be better if you did, because then people would take their medication. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm advocating for addictive drugs, um, but the, um, you know, with certain things, it, it actually, you know, I never forgot to take my heroin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. When you're experiencing emotional relief on that level and you've, you've made that connection, it's, it's, uh, it's it, like you've mentioned a few times, it's like being in love, right? You're, you don't yeah. really, it's hard to forget about uh, being in love. Yeah, um, it doesn't happen. <laughs> Maya, for, for you, it, the difference in the opinions on a, on addiction and the policies on addiction in your country are even more varied than in our country. And they're pretty varied in our country as well. I mean, we live very close to, to the Vancouver area, which is unique to all of Canada. So for you being in, in a state like New York, how do you do you have to sort of accept or how do you grapple with the the notion that there are places in your country that are so vastly behind i mean it's it's really interesting because i'm i'm very in awe of the harm reduction activists in the south and in some of these um red states where they're basically fighting the battles that we fought in the 80s and the thing is they do have a lot better weapons than we did because they have all our data um right. We had data too, um, and it really, you know, we knew what we needed to know in order to know what the right thing to do was. But um, now there's an immense amount of data, and now you have the federal government on the side of harm reduction rather than on the side of, you know, shut this down, it's terrible, we're going to send the wrong message. And I think one of the things that is amazing about harm reduction is that when you get it, when you understand that really our goal in drug policy should be stopping people from getting hurt, not stopping them from getting high. Like, I don't care if you get high. If you wanna get high, that's fine. As long as you're not hurting yourself or someone else, I don't care. I don't think the government should care. Just let it be, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you are hurting yourself or others, then we do have an interest in trying to prevent or reduce that. And the thing is, if that's our goal, we can't do more harm to you trying to stop you from harming yourself than we can um, if we just, uh, you know, let it happen. Um, mm -hmm. That makes no sense. And when you sort of see it from that perspective and when you recognize that 
you know, most people in general, they would much rather, you know, prevent a baby from being hurt than, um, you know, stop somebody from smoking a joint. It's not morally superior to stop the drug itself. What is morally superior, and this is where harm reduction wins, is to stop the harm or reduce the harm as much as possible. Because the reality of life is that we're all going to do harm at certain points and we try not to, we do our best to like avoid it. But, you know, that's the price of living on this planet to some extent. And, you know, people's needs are going to vary and there's all kinds of ways that, you know, we're going to hurt each other. So I think the best philosophy is let's minimize harm as much as possible. And let's recognize that, you know, people need to feel okay. And that if somebody is like fundamentally, whether, you know, for genetic or temperamental or genetically, genetically uh, sort of driven temperamental reasons, for any reason, um, if somebody, you know, simply can't feel okay, and they find a substance that works for them, then we need to not just take that substance away, if we're trying to help them, we need to like, find a way for them to be okay in their own skin in this world. Um, And if we can't offer that, why wouldn't people, you know, want to escape? I think the assumption that our baseline consciousness feels the same is just wrong. Like I may be super oversensitive to things and you might even like, I might just freak out for a loud noise. You might not even notice it. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't mean I'm bad or your nervous system is good or whatever. It just means that I'm going to be bothered by something that you don't even notice. And <laughs> that may make me behave in a way that is unusual because I'm trying to stop being bothered. If we could choose what bothers us, that would be a really good thing. But I have, you know, sadly, I do not have that ability and I do not know anybody who really does. Well said. Yes, uh, absolutely. The next question I've got for you is, again, uh, just one of pure curiosity and I know because you're you're basically always uh, you know you you're very deep in the neuroscience world, and uh, because you'd be a great person to ask. I remember from Unbroken Brain you had an experience in there that was, I would say, well, your entire experience in there was unusual in that it was to me it, it seemed like you you had a twenty year what would normally be a twenty year kind of cycle for a person in about three or four years, so you talk about a, a time when uh, you were withdrawing and I think you were in an apartment with a couple of friends or something. And you had a uh, sort of a paradigm shifting moment. It was a, what often is referred to as a moment of clarity. Yeah. Basically the day before I went into treatment, I think you're talking about. Yes. That's, that's yeah, right. I mean, and yeah, it was like, and you know, some people would call that hitting bottom but I really don't like that terminology because you can only determine it retrospectively. If I hadn't recovered after that moment, or if I continually relapsed after that moment, that would not have been my bottom. Um, So, you know, I was very lucky in that I had insight and I saw that, you know, I was really in trouble and I needed help, but I also had middle-class parents who could pay for it. And I knew I could turn to them. They hadn't cut me off or, you know, done anything to make me feel, you know, unwelcome. So when I had that realization that I need to stop and I can't do it myself, 
I was able to, you know, I, I had a court date the next day because I was facing legal charges related to dealing. And I knew that my dad would be there and that, you know, I would tell him what was up and he would do whatever he could to help me. And my mom had been trying to get me um, into treatment. And so I just asked him to like drive me up to state where she lived. And, you know, that was how I ended up getting into treatment. And I would have wished there were different options available at that point. Um, yeah, but sounds I, pretty brutal. <laughs> I was able to, um, you know, thankfully I was able to, you know, to get help and to get help that I could accept, even though later I decided that some of that stuff they told me was absolutely wrong based <laughs> on the data. But, you know, at the time I was told, this is the only way to do it. So I did it. And, you know, there are many people who unfortunately when they're told that it just doesn't work for them at all. And then, you know, they do end up being incarcerated simply because they weren't given the option um, of treatment that is actually effective for them. But thankfully, I was able to recover and I was able to translate that insight into actual change because so often people have insight and it doesn't lead to change at all. Actionable change would be a understatement of the century. I mean, uh, you've written two books that might be the most important books on uh, addiction and harm reduction that have ever been written. That, that yeah, it's a, well, it's yeah. convenient also that I wrote the first history of it. So therefore, like everybody else will have to contend with it. Well, that may be, but uh, still uh, quite remarkable. Um, during that moment of clarity, do you think there's any anything neurologically that's happening in the way of um, we we frequently talk about how it seems like your options become very narrow when your brain has kind of dialed in on that motivating factor that you've learned. You've repeated that behavior. There's neural pruning that takes place. The gray matter deteriorates. You literally your your options become few because you can't see them anymore. And yet, at that point, you were able to look around and you, you had this moment where you could see options. Do you think that the brain has maybe some kind of a safeguard or some kind of a, when it, when it senses that it's so narrow in focus, it, it I does something? No, I mean, one of the things that definitely occurred to me later when I thought about that was, you know, I was about 23 at that time. And that is um, typically the time when, you know, your frontal cortex is finally, yeah. you know, your frontal cortex is finally right. fully online. So maybe something there clicked into place and gave me more control than I previously had. Right. Um, and that was via, you know, being able to see that there were other things and that, you know, or just very clearly to see that this was not working and that I needed to find some other way of coping that hopefully would. So I think that is one thing. I think it's also just really interesting how, um, you know, human beings can behave so differently when they feel as though they have choices versus when they don't. You know, the whole physiology of our stress system is different under those um, circumstances because if you feel you have even the tiniest bit of control, you're much less susceptible to things like PTSD or bad other physical effects from traumatic stress, the more control you have, the less helpless you feel, the more likely you are to be resilient and recover from those things. And this is why 
I think it's so awful what we're doing to like pain patients when we just take away their meds. And it's like, okay, the person has zero control over this. And now you've messed up their stress system terribly by taking away one of the things that tamps it down. That is so different from when somebody says, you know what? I'm a little spacey on this dose. I need to come down a little bit. Um, You know, let me try that. And the doctor says, okay, we'll try that. And, you know, if you're feeling bad, we'll adjust further and whatever, because then it's like, okay, I know that somebody's got my back, no matter what I'm dealing with here, instead of you're a horrible person, I must force you to do something. And the difference in the experience of being treated with respect and being treated as somebody who's human and makes choices versus, um, you know, just being treated like an object is enormous. And also like, you know, evolutionarily, we're kind of hierarchical creatures. Mm -hmm. And so the stress from being dominated (laughs) is also deeply problematic. And this is part of why inequality is so bad for human health. Um, One of the most famous people who studied this, I'm pretty sure it was Robert Sapolsky said something along the lines of, you know, when humans created the status hierarchies we now have in, in societies, this is, you know, compared to like monkeys where there's like, you know, an alpha and a beta and it's just like very there, you know, this is just now the good thing about this is that humans also are very creative at getting status from things that are different. So you might be completely low status in your job, but you might be absolutely high status in the dance scene on the right. dance, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, or in your church or, you know, and that can be protective actually physiologically against the stress of being low status. You know, anyway, I think it's really interesting to look at this in an evolutionary and neuroscientific way, not overhyping not saying that this is true human nature and everybody's like this, mm-hmm. but sort of recognizing these commonalities and then looking for the complexities and non-binaries and all that. Yes, absolutely. It, it makes me think of myself. We've told the story on this podcast before of when I, I was working as a nurse, diverting hydromorphone, I got called by my employer. And although I had a moment of saying, oh shit, it was like, within minutes, I felt like the most immense sense of, of relief. And just as you were talking, it made me think that what, what that relief was about was, was options and a little bit of regaining of, or just the knowledge that there could be some, some autonomy there and some choice given back to me. And that that's what that was about. Cause it was, it was like a, it felt just like a, a true parting of the clouds. And you no, know, it's interesting because when sort of the worst thing that you think can happen already has happened, there is that sense of relief and that sense of, okay, I'm now going to have to do something different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. uh, it may suck, but like, hopefully it won't suck as bad as this, um, you know, and, and yeah, I can totally see that. And also like, I mean, I think it sounds like you were treated reasonably well when that happened, as opposed to thrown out on the street. Yeah, it was a complicated story, but 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 yes, I still had my home. I still had support. I knew that my family would would be around me, and and I knew that all of the fundamental parts of my life would would remain intact. Yeah, for sure. I think that also gives you just in that moment where you're you're talking about the parting of the clouds. That's the difference between total despondence and all of a sudden there's hope, just a fraction, a little bit of hope. Yeah, and that there's an actual effect 
in the brain that that's not just sort of an out there esoteric kind of an idea but that it's an actually a, a a concrete thing that's happening within our our brains well and i mean i think this is also why psychedelics can be potentially useful in treatment because they can often give people that kind of insight that comes from thinking differently than you normally think i get very nervous about them being overhyped and about the idea that like, okay, you know, you're going to take mushrooms and now you'll no longer have depression or addiction or PTSD and your life will be perfect. And no, that is not going to be the case. Even if you take them 10 times, the thing that they can do is offer ways into insight, but then the change still has to occur and you still need the support to maintain that change. And, you know, yeah, some people, again, like, you know, there's always the story of the person who instantly gets enlightened and goes on and everything's perfect but those are the exception rather than the rule even though we tend to portray it the other way yeah 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 absolutely well said so Maya we wanted to bring it back to our context of healthcare Nathan is still a healthcare worker I am a now a former healthcare worker and I, I was a nurse and with a lot of nurses that that Nathan and I both know and that we know of um, one of their experiences is PTSD or at least trauma in the workplace which is now being much more readily accepted by workers' compensation insurance companies here in, in, in Canada and British Columbia. We know that hydromorphone specifically seems to be a, a drug that, that many nurses end up going to as a coping mechanism for their anxiety and depression and, and, and trauma. And up here when that happens, they go through um, a multi-stage uh, treatment program that is sort of uh, implemented partly by the union, partly by other insurance companies in collaboration with the employer too. And sometimes that's inpatient, sometimes that's outpatient. The goal is almost always ultimately to get people back to work. In some cases, back to work exactly where they were at um, in, the same, in the same acute setting, in the same ward in some cases. They're put into monitoring agreements um, where they're giving, you know, random urine samples twice a month or something, sometimes more. And with what we know about with trauma and the role of environment, I guess our, our question to you is, is what is your opinion on putting someone back into the same environment, even if they're on a monitoring program for a couple of years, which is acts as a safeguard that will soon, that will then eventually go away and it will be they will be left to their own devices in that same environment that with access to medicate those medications right. with access to trauma again. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the best treatments we have for dealing with trauma is not avoiding is <laughs> going back right in there in that situation and now being there and not having it traumatize you so that that's exposure. Right. So there is something to be said for that. But, you know, it's a matter of timing and a matter of the person's sense of control and a matter of what the person really wants, because it may be the case that that environment is terrible for them and they need to get out of it. It may also be the case that this is what they love doing and, you know, this is exactly where they need to be. So I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but I think that it will really depend on you know the person and this is why i think helping people recover is so hard because different people need different things and we don't know what they are and they don't even necessarily know what they are in advance and so um i think you know oftentimes 
that can work well for people. But again, it really depends, like, what was the trauma? You know, how common is it in that setting that they're going to be re-traumatized? What can you do to, you know, minimize that exposure or at least, you know, have things that offer resilience for that person, whether it be, you know, family support or friends or therapy or, um, you know, whatever it is they love to do. I think there's yeah. a, a lot of value in that in that answer. I mean, Nathan and I have both had the experience with with people that we know and 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 certainly for myself that that soul searching that needed to happen, that really getting honest with ourselves needed to happen. But but it that question wasn't necessarily provided by the insurance companies, by the treatment programs. In fact, the message there is to get you back to where you were. So if you're, I guess it's kind of the missing piece is that to ask ourselves that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I think the, you know, again, of course the job of the insurance company and the union is, you know, they want you back to work. That's what they're supposed to achieve. Yeah, um, right. So you kind of can't blame them for, um, for that, but yeah, you have to figure out for yourself if that's where you should be. But I think once, um, you know, once you at least have some, grounding in recovery and some sense that, yes, I can do this, that making those other choices becomes um, easier and it becomes more obvious, you know, if you should move to something different or not. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned autonomy as a, a big factor there. And I think that is, that's a, a massive part of it. I've seen many nurses, uh, healthcare professionals where they're, they come out of treatment and, and they're, they're, doing everything that they're told and they're heading towards going back to work. I can tell they're not ready. They haven't even considered it as an option, uh, anything other than going back to work, but there seems to be a, there's kind of a revelation that needs to happen there where they realize that there is other things they can do. They don't, once they realize they don't have to necessarily go back to the same spot, then there's a a relaxing kind of an anti-anxiety effect that happens and more clarity so they can then make a decision based on, you know, what their level of recovery is, like you said, and what their support networks are and what the environment is. But yeah, yeah, we we ask you a very tough question there, Maya, (laughs) 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 but uh, it's, it's an interesting one anyway. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, you know, it's very interesting, you know, here we have people who are like, Oh, look, when we do all this drug testing and all this monitoring on health professionals, look how well they do 90%, you know, recover. And it's like, so we should apply that to like people who have no job and no status and and that'll work. And it's like, Mm. no, okay. You put people through medical school first, then you can um, (laughs) give them high status job and um, you know, all those things that, that people in the field have and money and, and union and all these things. Yeah. Then you can get that success rate, but not like just by like drug testing people every five minutes, that's ridiculous. And sort of failing to look at the social determinants of health, it really drives me crazy. Yeah. Well, I think you've, you've talked about that before. (laughs) He said, uh, they look at the difference in recovery rates between a, a doctor who's got full support and a job waiting for him and returns from recovery versus a homeless person. And they say, oh, look, the doctor does, is doing much, much better. You know, it's, it's, we must continue with whatever uh, intervention we've done. There is no correlation there because <laughs> it's no, not the no. same thing. But I mean, like, it's, it's ridiculous because actual scientists make this argument. I'm thinking of Robert DuPont, who's 
you know, just like, I mean, he sells drug testing. So I presume that's why he makes this argument, but it's like a vision of a complete surveillance. <laughs> you know, you're going to be surveilled for five years, you know, and like, that's, what's going to, you know, sustain you in recovery is no, that isn't what makes programs for doctors good. Yeah. <laughs> what starts to make them good is first of all, we're starting with doctors, but second of all, you know, the kind of resources that <laughs> the rest of us often don't have. Precisely. Yeah. Maya, we've talked about uh, on our podcast about personality traits that make us vulnerable, that have made us specifically vulnerable and, and, and maybe healthcare workers specifically too, that, you know, those of us who have, uh, have higher tendencies towards perfectionism or have more neuroticism or have experienced early childhood trauma that then maybe leads us down to the, the path of wanting to, wanting to help or wanting to, to be a, a caregiver. Do you think that, have you experienced any benefit with, with screening individuals? You know, we've thought about, should people be screened? Should there be that discussion in, in universities about, are you going into a field that, that um, makes you vulnerable? And if you have these traits and, and these experiences that you're coming into it with, that you're actually very vulnerable. I mean, I, I'm nervous about that because I feel like some of the best people in the field are people of these traits mm -hmm. and yeah. you don't want to screen them out. Um, you also don't want to like create a self-fulfilling label. I was just reading a piece in a medical journal about, um, we should be talking about pre-addiction. I'm like, no, let's not do that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like I think, yes, we should look at how do you cope with having outlying personality traits and how do you cope with a history of childhood trauma, but it doesn't need to be in a pathologizing way. It just yeah. needs to be in a way that, okay, like I am extremely anxious. Therefore, there are certain things I need to do to manage that, that somebody who likes jumping off cliffs for entertainment doesn't need to do. Now that guy has a risk factor for addiction because he likes that. <laughs> it's a different one from, from the one I have. Um, but, um, you know, it's like, you know, sensation seeking, different coping skills needed for that as opposed to, you know, anxiety or depressive traits. So what you want to do is, yeah, you want to like help people manage the temperament and the personality that they have, but not stigmatize them by saying, oh, this means you're going to be an addicted person if you um, go into this field. Like, so I think, I think labels can be very helpful when they help you explain yourself to yourself. This is why I think being, knowing that I'm on the autism spectrum has um, been very helpful for me because I just thought I was bad and selfish before that. So like having, oh, that's why all those weird things go together. Okay. That makes sense. You know, I have this sensory overload, so I'm trying to manage it. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, and similarly, right. If you're the kind of person who just loves excitement, we need you in the, you know, police field or the, you know, ambulance or, you know, surgeons or a lot of people um, who have those traits that can be very destructive can also use them in very constructive ways um, if you harness them the right way. So it's really about recognizing that oftentimes the same thing that is your strength is also your vulnerability. So how do we manage that without stigmatizing you and 
while allowing, you know, you to um, minimize risk. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. And I think the really the only thing you can do with, I mean, of course, we don't want to prevent people from going into certain fields because they're, we feel that they're too vulnerable to whatever, like, uh, but awareness, I think is, is somewhere where we can improve and, and maybe just being a little more aware of how personality traits can possibly put us at risk for, uh, like Corey, you had a, a great, uh, example of that with, with somebody who, who kind of, uh, assessed your personality, correct? Yeah. You know, I, I had been a nurse for, for maybe three years at, at, at uh, early on in my career, and then was going to make the transition into becoming a, an ER nurse. And, uh, I had a manager who knew me very well and she said, Oh, but Corey, you're, you're far too, too sensitive. You're far too, you care far too much to be in an environment where you will be forced to move so fast and, and at times move on so fast. And I remember sort of brushing her off and, uh, and looking back at that, I think, no, she was spot on that. that, (laughs) And again, should I have not gone there? No, but incorporating a better self-care regimen into my into my life and incorporating dialogue about what was actually happening and what I was seeing. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's something that where we are seeing some change within our healthcare system here uh, and some positive steps, but there certainly is catching up to do where. Well, and I also think like a lot of this ideally would be taught to children, great Canadian program called roots of empathy, where um, they bring a mom or a dad and a baby into the classroom and they they visit the class like once a month for six months or something like this and they watch the baby like become able to do things that the baby couldn't do before they also look at you know a crying baby isn't a bad baby what does this baby want what is wrong how do we solve this baby's problem not this baby is a problem right mm-hmm. um you know and um you know so you look at like oh this person, you know, this baby has a very shy temperament. If you make a noise, that baby's going to do this. Whereas, you know, another baby might just be like, eh, whatever. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. So they learn about temperament. They learn about, you know, growth and about um, caring and empathy. And also like the mom or the dad's perspective. Oh, this crying is really annoying me, uh, which kids almost never think from their parents' perspective, right? <laughs> uh, so um, it's really, it's just useful to get people um, taking perspectives. And also like, it really works against bullying because nobody wants to hurt their little baby. And like, <laughs> they start to think like, oh, I was that baby, you know? And, you know, they, it, it just, you know, prompts kindness. Um, and a sort of atmosphere of like, oh, we have these differences. They're cool. You know, how do we manage them so that like we get the best out of them? So that is one thing that I think is, is a really cool thing. And that is like, a you know, they have versions of it for like, you know, up kindergarten up through high school. And, you know, the high school one's going to probably be rather different, um, mm. especially about maybe you don't want to have a baby right now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, you know, it's, it's um, people really need to be better educated about human psychology and personality and, and these things, because we just act under these cultural myths. 
And if we have a chance to examine them, and I recognize like, you know, okay, I'm sort of obsessed with this, but some people might be much more interested in cars. Um, but, um, you know, I do think everybody could use a little bit of it so that, for example, when you are picking a career and when you are faced with challenges within that, you know a bit about how you particularly respond to those kinds of things. And again, like being really sensitive can be really good in some jobs. It can be really horrible in some other jobs. It doesn't mean it's bad. No. Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, completely agree. And yeah, it's, I'm also very interested in that. And I, I, I wonder what kind of changes would occur on a, on a cultural level if we implemented something like that with kids. It actually leads nicely into the the next question. You, I, I think it was the the first time I realized the importance of the sensitivity periods you talk about in early childhood and adolescence was uh, when I was reading Unbroken Brain. I think I was, I mean, I was aware, but not really aware. And if people were more aware of the fact that, uh, especially for parents, I mean, we know now that there's certain periods of development where children can be extremely susceptible to environmental stressors. And I wonder what we can do, I guess, what can we do as a society? You've discussed a little bit about maybe a program like uh, uh, the one you were uh, mentioning earlier, where you've got examples for uh, children to see young. Do you have any, any idea as to, the specific ranges, or is this another spectrum that's going to be wildly variable? Because I know they break up, uh, they've got like early childhood, middle childhood, you know, they have these different time ranges. Uh, I think the middle one is six to 10 or something like that. And then I've, I've seen studies where like three or four year olds are very sensitive in some areas. Uh, they seem to be very sensitive to uh, things like anxiety from their parents. Is there any kind of information that we have that we could use to maybe give to parents to say, okay, this is very important that your, your child has a a stable, calm environment during this period. You know, if, if you, I mean, obviously like we've tried to do that with all the emphasis on the first five years, but then people are like, okay, I've already ruined my kid, whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah. Yes, the first five years are super important and you really do need to give little children a lot of love and a lot of support and a lot of affection and a lot of kindness. But, um, you know, I think the thing with adolescence that's important is that kids are going to do dumb things. We have to understand that a lot of the exploration and discovery that humans have done was like, teenagers, young men often just doing stupid stuff that actually turned out to be helpful. (laughs) Now, given, you know, like we have that again, like, you know, you got to get the kid out of the house so that they can find a mate, right? Um, And that's what's going on in the teenage brain. And that's what parents do not like to be going on in the teenage brain. But Mm. that's reality. They need to get out there among their peers. And, you know, their dopamine levels are going to drop and they're going to be bored to death and they're going to want to go out and find something interesting to do, which will involve, you know, um, whatever their preferred gender may be. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, also their peers. So, Instead of like trying to fight that and pretend that, oh, we're just going to make it so they can never take any risks. 
no, that's not, you know, that just, it's not going to happen. Like what you want to do is minimize the harms associated with the risks that they will inevitably take. A kid smoking pot is going to be at far less risk than a kid who takes a mystery pill that had, might have fentanyl in it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and we have ways to kind of put guardrails on it and to help teach kids about what's going on in their brain and about, you know, how to um, begin to learn to manage it. But to assume that you're instantly going to be an expert and instantly going to have mature wisdom when you're like 14 is just ridiculous. And to just like yeah. hide them in a closet for eight years or whatever is only going to postpone this and leave them, you know, um, developmentally delayed, basically. So, you know, I mean, that is just hard and parents don't want to accept that. But, you know, the reality is, thankfully, <laughs> the vast majority of teenagers do fine. Um, yeah. And they outgrow that and they're nice people again. And, you know, some don't even go through a phase where they're mean to their parents. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's just the other thing that's also important to know, again, at that stage is this is when, if you're going to have a mental illness, it's probably going to be visible. So everything like 75% of all mental illness, including addictions, starts in the adolescence and young adulthood. With addictions, it's more like 90%. Um, but in general, it's 75%. And so like, if somebody's going to be depressed, if somebody's going to be bipolar, whatever they may be prone to, these things are going to come out. And, you know, one of the things that teenagers really don't know is what is typical? You know, I won't say normal, but what is typical? Right. And how do you know when some behavior by your peer is really out of bounds or is just like normal teenage weirdness? <laughs> and mm. that is really difficult sometimes. Um, but again, if you know bare outlines of like, this is what depression looks like, this is what anxiety looks like, this is what bipolar looks like, this is what ADD looks like, then again, you can be oh, okay, maybe that's what's going on instead of, oh, I'm just this terrible person who will never fit in. And also working on things like bullying is really important because that can often, kids who are outlying in any way are often going to get bullied. And kids who are outlying in any way are often either about to manifest some kind of mental illness or developmental issue um, or addiction or both. And so, you know, or the after effects of trauma, whatever, all of these things are going on and, you know, becoming, you know, beginning to become visible in adolescence. The important thing, of course, is not, you know, tell somebody that you have this thing and it will limit you. It's more like, you know, you may be developing these tendencies. How do we manage them so that they don't get in your way? Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like, again, if we could uh, find a way to get that information across to kids in a way that they could understand and that would improve their awareness of their peers, awareness of what's going on in their own brain. And I mean, this is not a, a new concept, but it, if you look at our education system in Canada and, and the U S it's hasn't changed a lot in that regard in that we could be implementing, you know, that kind of a, a, an awareness program a lot earlier and a lot more consistently so that kids had a better understanding of what was going on with their peers. Why is that kid acting that way? Why am I having trouble with this problem when other kids don't seem to be having that problem? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what's frustrating here right now is that we have 
a political movement that thinks that social and emotional learning is bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, like teaching kids to be kind and empathetic is bad because they might become liberals. Right. Yeah. There's (laughs) politicizing (laughs) of these, um, you know, especially when they're data driven policies, uh, the things that you can see that are reproducible in studies, Let's, you know, I, I wish we could remove the, we've just become so, everything is ingrained in politics and it's very difficult yeah. from a scientific uh, standpoint right now. No, well, I mean, the thing that really bothers me about all of that is just that we actually know a good bit about what works for a lot of our various social problems. And certain countries do a pretty decent job of making that happen for the vast majority of their people. Mm-hmm. Um, but Politically, we're just like, no, we can't go there because those people are bad or those people are bad. And we're going to like destroy the climate because we can't reach some kind of consensus on how to deal with it. It's just such a frustrating place to be in because it's like we have this knowledge and yet we can't use it. And I just I just remember like when I was like more actively like right now I'm writing mostly about addiction. But when I was sort of more actively covering neuroscience day to day just thinking like, we know how to do these things. Why aren't we doing them? You know, we know how harmful inequality is. Why are we letting this be this way? You are preaching to the choir. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Not a day goes by where I don't feel myself aging a little faster than I should be because of precisely what you said. I mean, it actually leads into the next question here too, which is, with addiction specifically, I mean, this could be extended to all sorts of different issues. Like you mentioned the environment, it's very frustrating. Um, but with addiction, I find it particularly odd that we are at this point where we have all these amazing studies that have shown us what's going on with the brain. We know that it's much more neuroplastic than we used to think back in the days when we were just a container of uh, brain cells that depleted over time. You know, we've, we've come a long way and, I, I think that, um, well, from what I'm seeing, uh, I've, I'm seeing some very positive studies in, uh, in things with stem cells that can actually, uh, in animal studies where they're actually repairing, not repairing, that's not the right word, uh, restoring brains to pre, pre-addiction levels as far as the gray matter and the, the neural kind of capacity for options is concerned. I wonder and maybe you're, if you're not uh, studying neuroscience as much, maybe you, you haven't uh, looked at the recent stuff, but what kind of things have you seen that show promise for, you know, maybe people who are in early recovery, uh, post-acute withdrawal? Have you, have you seen new therapies and stuff like that that are not commonly? I mean, it was interesting. Uh, I was actually just looking at something from NIDA um, that was um, about this um, sleeping medication called Suvorexin which is one of these orexin modifying uh, medications. And orexin is basically the thing that keeps you awake. And so it also has, it's also like kind of associated with desire and appetite. Anyway, this stuff seems to help people sleep better and withdrawal, which is one of the biggest issues. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it does not produce physical dependence and it, it does not seem to be prone to misuse. So, you know, that seemed really interesting to me, but I really think, you know, the sad thing is like, we're just not doing enough on, you know, get people a house, get people fed, (laughs) 
<laughs> like, yeah, um, that's true. Like, you know, get people a job. Some of this is not rocket science. And some of this, we don't have to like worry about, okay, post-acute referral brain, whatever. If people have something to live for, <laughs> they will tend to do enormously better. And yes, I love the complex brain science and like figuring out all these ways these little things work. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that a lot of this is social um, and it's social as translated through our brains, but simply fixing the brain chemistry without dealing with the social circumstances that people are in is not going to be enough. Now that said, some people, you might give MDMA once and they're fine and life goes on and they're great. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, um, you know, might be on methadone for the rest of their life and, but it's working and they don't need counseling and cool for them. It's going to be different things for different people. Um, but you know, somebody who has no house and no job and no education is going to be at much greater risk of not recovering. Yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're, you're right there. Uh, maybe I should tone down the, uh, looking for the magic cure a little bit and, uh, <laughs> think a little bit more of the simple stuff because yeah, we're, we're definitely not, I mean, even in, uh, from a healthcare perspective where we seem to be getting somewhere with the way that we're uh, treating people who get into trouble with addiction, but still a long ways to go. So, well, also yeah. another thing that is simple and really helpful to a lot of people is exercise. Yes, yeah, um, that's a that's a big weapon that that yeah. is not emphasized. It's the biggest bet, like as far as your return for your effort in and yeah. what you're getting. It, it is, in my opinion, the best. Yeah, and my feeling with that is like you have to think of it as like the opposite of drugs. So it's like the pain first, then the high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like, you know, you got to like push yourself through the lousy part to realize like, yeah, I'm actually going to feel really good after this. You know, it might suck right now. You know, that's really good. And also music. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people's engagement with that can be so positive, you know, and again, it'll be different things for different people. But these simple things can really just make a physiological difference. They really can. Can you elaborate on, on the music piece in, in the context of, of early recovery, say? Well, I mean, <laughs> I was a deadhead and I'm still a deadhead. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like one of the things, you know, in my early recovery, I was like, no, I am not giving up my music. They're like, oh, you know, this is druggy music or whatever. No, this music without the drugs makes me high. So I'm going to enjoy it. And mm-hmm. like, yes, I am going to go to a dad show. And actually, it turns out that they have 12 step meetings called the Wharf Rats between sets. And I think they have this now with like more modern groups. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's some further iteration. Oh, actually, they have it at Burning Man. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, the, the thing is that denying yourself exposure to some of these things that you love can also spur relapse. I went into, I'm going to go to a show. I'm going to eat some chocolate. I'm not going to like get high, but I will enjoy my chocolate while listening to music that I love. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, oh. and I know that's silly, but you know, mm-hmm. um, just like, I think a lot of times in traditional recovery, they just tell people to like avoid pleasurable things that, you know, may or may not be associated with drugs for that particular person. And I think that's dangerous because what you need are what they call alternative reinforcers, i.e. other sources of pleasure, one of which for me personally and for an enormous number of people is music. Yeah, absolutely. And we still see that. I saw that in treatment. 
The gym was open for two hours a day, very difficult to get in there uh, with the schedule we had. And if you were seen in the gym too often, you would be flagged for uh, relapse behavior because they, they they think of it as that a is the dumbest thing ever. Oh my god! Yeah, it's, okay, uh, wait, it's not quite the dumbest thing ever, but like um, <laughs> Hazel has banned sugar for a while for that similar reason, and like in my rehab, sugar was highly restricted. So of course, what do we do? We sneak and have sugar parties. Why yeah. not? You are feeling bad in every other way. You know, like, and this used to drive me crazy. I used to go to these meetings. They'd be like. Oh, I had to give up my girlfriend and my music and my sports. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like recovery to me. No. What recovery sounds like to me is like, I got my music back. Now I can actually play, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, um, you know, um, I have friends, I can go out, I can enjoy myself in, in various ways. I can, you know, pet my cat or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I like, I think that's a very, very dangerous and, counterproductive way of dealing with things like I know that like there's some research that suggests that like oh if you force people to quit smoking when they are in rehab they are likely to stay quit well yeah but they also might drop out of the rehab oh yeah no I, I mean there's no other place that I've ever seen so many uh just blatant uh, you know uh switches from one addiction to the other and I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculous that it's not addressed. I mean. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think, you know, if you can get yourself through and move towards better coping skills, that's all good. Not everybody does not need to be abstinent from everything forever. And, you know, seeing just normal human pleasure seeking as, and relief seeking as like disease or automatically addictive is counterproductive. I think, yes, can somebody be at the gym 24 seven? That might be a problem, yes. But right now, instead of heroin, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd think that'd be a fairly uh, straightforward one, but uh, yeah. yeah, much to learn. We'll get there hopefully one day. <laughs> um, American Beauty was one of my uh, favorite albums in, in early recovery. And uh, it was only in, at that time in my life that I realized just how fully beautiful it is yeah. and how Those beautiful the lyrics are, are. yeah and i mean i think ripple is one of the most beautiful lyrical songs maybe of the century so so it it's it, for me it was about learning new experiencing it again experiencing it differently and probably making new pathways in my brain as i'm doing constructive positive happy activities hearing those hearing those songs so well and i mean really like with any great music i feel like you can listen to it a zillion times and you'll hear different things in it because those harmonies in that are really complex, not so much in Ripple, but in something like Addicts of Your Life, it's like, you know, um, you could spend years working on that harmony, you know, and, and there's like, yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. I'm, I'm really into jazz lately and it's like, ah, <laughs> so much going on, this is really cool. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, we don't want to take too much of your time because you are a very busy lady. So I think that's the end of our questions that we have uh, prepared for you anyways. I just, I, I can't express enough gratitude for, for taking the time to do this. I mean, it's, I know this will be helpful to our listeners, but from a personal perspective, I'm just, I'm blown away. Thank you so much, Maya. 
Thank Maya, you. Is there, is there anything well. coming up that you wanted to 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 share that you're what you're oh, doing in the, the next little thing, bit? Yeah, the one thing I should mention, well, two things. So I am currently a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. So I'm writing for the op-ed section pretty regularly, uh, almost always about addiction. And so I'm doing that now. And also my undoing drugs is coming out in paperback in late July. So it will be cheaper. So please buy it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a, another absolutely fantastic book. It, uh, it demonstrates really nicely how uh, politics have played into the drug war, how drug policy has been shaped by our culture, you know, as, as far back as the early 1900s and forward. Uh, it's just a, a fantastic um, composition on, on, how we've got to where we are now. Highly recommend it. Thanks so much. All right, Maya, we will let you get back to your business and uh, hopefully have a good day. Yes, you too. And um, please let me know when this posts and I can um, tweet it. Okay. Wonderful. We will Thank do. you. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks, Maya. Bye now. Bye See you soon, everybody.